Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Filmmaker Michael Moore has a new film. His film Fahrenheit 11.9 explores the unfair playing field in the presidential campaign, the water crisis in his hometown, Flint, Michigan, and the authoritarian streak in the Trump administration. We're going to talk about it now with film contributor Milos Stalik. Nice to see you, Milos. Hey, Jerome. Great to be here. Milos, um, filmmaker Michael Moore, interesting career he's had, and he's still cranking out a pretty uh, biting documentary these days. Well, he, he has his place as this agitator, this political agitprop, and in so many ways this film, or at least a part of this film, brings him back to where he really started, his career started, which is with Roger and me uh, in his hometown of Flint, Michigan. And the central piece of this film is returning to Flint, which obviously has been undergoing the crisis with the water, and so he examines that at great length. But it is wrapped around the larger picture of, as he starts the film, with the question of how the blank did we get here, which has to do, which has to do with the Trump election. It was almost like a two-hour um, compression of the last two years. It felt like the whole thing took the trauma of the last two years and put it into one little two-hour package. Well, it's interesting because when he when you edit it together, as he did, and very fast, you know, compresses the time sequence, then we really see this trajectory of what we've gone through in the last two years, and it is pretty daunting. I mean, to, to when you because it reminds you of all of the stress that you've gone through day by day, and now you see it compressed into less than two hours. I couldn't sleep last night. <laughs> that was I get, I get done with this movie, I couldn't sleep. <laughs> well, it is enervating. I mean, it is and also entertaining in parts because Michael, Cla uh, Michael Moore is an entertainer. He's not above at times being a clown. And as, as he is, especially in this from before this, uh, Where Do We Invade Next? But in this, he's remarkably restrained in some ways. And it, while I'm talking about it as a rather depressing film, there is some real a lot of enthusiasm he has for some of the new politicians that are coming in some of the political movements that are going on in in moments it's a wildly optimistic film yeah in the third section which is kind of the michael moore view of things his take on what's happened what's happening what the danger points are and what the hope is there is quite a bit of element in which he looks at young people the the the, the kids uh from florida who organized the march against the nra and and against school violence uh at uh, uh, m women participating much more and being elected and particip participating or being uh, uh, and winning elections, and his central theory is is that uh, which I think is interesting is that most Americans, if you ask what most Americans want, what they actually want is what the Bernie Sanders type of socialism, quote-unquote, would deliver, whereas they may not define them, themselves as that. So for him, democracy is aspirational. And he talks about all the people who didn't vote, which would be larger than uh, either political party. And he wants those people. He thinks they're not engaged because they're not getting the stuff they want. Right. And this is not a, a diatribe in any way against the Republican Party or against Republicans or even against Trump supporters. E it is equally a condemnation of Hillary Clinton and the severe mistakes that he says she made and the Democratic Party and the way that he thinks they let 
their connection with this voter base go astray. I'm talking with film contributor Milo Stalik about the new Michael Moore film, Fahrenheit 11.9. And we have a, a clip here. And one of the things I think uh, Michael Moore does pretty well is he strings together clips of stuff and makes you think. And this is uh, a clip that is going to remind us how many times Donald Trump has talked about ending term limits. Keep America great! Exclamation point. In campaigning for an eight-year presidency. Unless they give me an extension for the presidency. These are what I call trial balloons. You throw out an idea that previously was unthinkable. Four years, eight years, or as you know, FDR, in one case, 16 years. Should we go back to 16 years? Should we do that, Congressman? Can we have that extended? Unthinkable in democracy or unthinkable for human rights reasons. She is a great gentleman. He's now president for life. <laughs> president for life. No, he's great. He's, hey, look, he was able to do that. I think it's great. Maybe we'll have to give that a shot someday. They float these ideas. They get them out there. And then the press does its job for him. President Trump offering his congratulations to Turkey's President Erdogan for winning a referendum that grants him sweeping new powers. Picks them up, amplifies them, circulates, and then it becomes a thing. You know, the last time I jokingly said that, 16 years, the papers started saying, he's got despotic tendencies. Now, I'm not looking to do it. Unless you want to do it, that's okay. That's a clip from Fahrenheit 11.9, Michael Moore's new film, Milos Stalik. Um, that, that made me think. That section made me think. Well, it's only two years, you know, and this is not just uh, Michael Moore's idea. And Hillary Clinton was on TV recently really saying, saying that she was afraid of the same thing, that if, if Trump loses, that he would suspend the elections. And I mean, so she's worried about this kind of coup. And, you know, there's a lot of kind of theory about this. And in the third section, when Michael Moore really uh, brings this parallel to Nazi Germany using archival footage from Hitler's rise to power, speaking about despotism. What's, uh, what's interesting about this, for example, is this idea of creating a crisis, and he uses the false attack, missile attack on Hawaii, which was a mistake, as an example of the kind of thing that could happen, create a crisis, a national crisis, in which, of course, then you can seize power. How did you take the uh, Hitler comparison? Because on one hand, I thought it was done pretty well or pretty interestingly um, because we don't think maybe enough that Germany was a uh, sophisticated country that uh, had a established democracy and they let this thing happen, uh, which he drives home pretty well. And, but then he's got Donald Trump's voice coming out of Hitler's mouth for an extended <laughs> period of time. I, I didn't think that worked so great. Uh, yeah, it's kind of awkward and it goes on too long. <laughs> it's it's kind of, I mean, it reminded me kind of of a great dictator, you know, the great uh, Charlie right. Chaplin film, which of course does it much, much better. But I mean, some of the comparisons, of course, are chilling. And I think it's amplified when he brings, again, in the third section, some of the experts, especially uh, Timothy Snyder, who wrote a really great book called On Tyranny, uh, at trying to explain this kind of process of dictatorship, which, and of course, underlying that is Trump's seeming love for every you know, dictator who exists in the universe and, and, and being admiring of them. There's almost nothing in the film that you 
that is really new other than the Flint section. The Flint section, I do learn things and I do see people uh, talking about a situation that I didn't fully get entirely. Yeah, it's been a kind of reported piecemeal in a way because we really didn't quite, it, you know, we got. It took it, place over a long period of time. It took place over a long period of time, so we don't understand the whole whole context. For me, the chilling moment, and it's one of the, in that Flynn section, was the visit final, finally, when uh, President Obama comes to Flint and there's this fake staging, which seems to be of his drink, insisting that he drinks a glass of Flint water to prove that it's safe. And of course, he just takes a little sip and he repeats it. He does it twice. And then, of course, he leaves and does nothing for Flint. And the looks on people's faces as he does the water thing and barely <laughs> takes a sip of water is is pretty priceless the the people who were in you know he would they were supporting him they thought he was going to help but that did not happen well they were really hungry for somebody to come and help because it's you know they suffered through all these denials all of these lies that were that were told you know uh, withholding of information and of course in the meantime their kids they themselves are really ser- getting sick from drinking the water Fahrenheit 11.9 gives you a lot to think about the new film by Michael Moore. Milo Stalik, thanks for joining us as you do every Friday, and we'll see you next Friday. Great to be here, Jerome. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about uh, South Korea's president and his trip to North Korea. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. South Korea's President Moon Jae-in spoke before 150,000 North Koreans earlier this week. There was enthusiastic applause as he told them the destiny of the Korean people was in the hands of the Korean people. Here to talk about the trip of South Korea's president to the North is Bruce Cummings, professor of history at the University of Chicago, author of The Korean War, A History, amongst other books. Good to see you, Bruce. Good to see you, Jerome. You know, in August, the U.S. canceled a trip by Mike Pompeo to North Korea, and it looked like the the progress was halting on the North Korean deal. Uh, this trip seems to have breathed a lot of new life into it. President Trump is enthusiastic. President Moon is going to come report to President Trump when he's meeting him next week at the U.N. Uh, there seems to be a lot good going on. Yeah, I think uh, President Moon of uh, South Korea is really pushing uh, very hard, pushing forward uh, in in a kind of vacuum in the sense that Trump and his advisors are split on what the real issue is. Most of his advisors, like most of the inside the Beltway people in both parties, think the key thing is to denuclearize North Korea. And after that, they don't care what happens, although they would like North Korea to also disappear uh, along with the nuclear weapons. But they've been fixated on that problem for 25 years or more. Uh, while Koreans have many other things they worry about. Uh, and President Moon, I think, because uh, Trump somehow wants things to come out well because he went to Singapore and he met with Kim Jong-un and therefore it has to come out well, uh, Trump, in a curious way, has provided a real opportunity for both Moon and 
uh, Kim Jong-un in the north to, to move things forward. And they have not moved things forward ever as fast as they did this week. Go through the list of things that happened here because there's railroads being built. There's, uh, they're, they're taking weapons away along the border. They're going to plan the Olympics together. It's like, a, it's like a laundry list of togetherness. I almost brought in notes, which I don't usually do when I uh, talk to you uh, because there were so many things. But uh, our media has completely missed a whole bunch of agreements. Uh, only today did the New York Times uh, mention the military annex to the general agreement they made. And that annex calls for uh, getting heavy weaponry out of the <laughs> demilitarized zone, making it a real zone. That's wild because they were just – they fire bullets there on a regular basis. Absolutely. And it's tense. Yeah, I mean, some every once in a while, someone tries to escape from North Korea, and the North Koreans open up on them right at Panmunjom. Uh, that truce negotiation town or spot will also be demilitarized. Uh, the railroads will be reconnected, which is very important because it's uh, particularly big for Russia, and its trade with South Korea will make it much cheaper uh, than going by boat or plane or something if they can have a railroad running into uh, Soviet Far East, and this Russian is, Far this East. And this is railroads on both sides of the peninsula they're talking about. Yeah, there always have been. The Japanese built these roads originally in the 1930s, uh, mainly to get exports out of Manchuria like soybeans and things like that uh, and to move troops. But yeah, they're on both the east and west uh, corridors of the peninsula. Uh, another thing the our paper of record and just about everybody else has missed is that there was one line saying we affirm all the agreements made uh, at the second summit in 2007 uh, between uh, President No Muhyan and Kim Jong-il. And that summit was really important because it, it talked about taking the Kaesong export zone, which had tens of thousands of North Korean workers working for South Korean firms on the other side of the DMZ on the north, and doing the same thing in Heju, which is a port uh, to the uh, uh, west of uh, Kaesong, and then coming around to Nampo, which is the port of Pyongyang, uh, which really would open up the southeastern part, uh, I'm sorry, southwestern part of North Korea, which was always the wealthiest part, to uh, world commerce and to the Northeast Asian political economy. Uh, and I've, you know, I've met President Moon, but I also you know, know people very close to him, they're old friends. He sees economics driving the relationship with North Korea, not really denuclearization, although he knows he has to at least go along with that. Uh, he wants to integrate the North Korean economy with the regional economy and with South Korea. Uh, and I was very happy to see that, that that particular agreement uh, was revived because President Lee Myung-bak came in very shortly after that 2007 summit and acted like these agreements didn't exist at all and proceeded to get into a lot of hostility with the North. Right now, the United States seems to be um, been, have been waiting on its haunches for some kind of movement for North Korea, and the North seems to want the U.S. to declare an end to the Korean War. Um, that seems to be the next thing. They they want to see something out of the U.S. Do you think the U.S. will declare an end to the Korean War? Can it do it without China? Can is everybody else? Well, I I think the U.S. right up until this week has the Trump administration anyway has refused to do anything really for North Korea until North Korea makes bona fide uh, 
progress in denuclearization, whereas the North Koreans have always operated on a tit-for-tat basis. They did this back in the Korean War negotiations. They've done it ever since. They don't, you know, they're like Las Vegas gamblers. I mean, they don't give up anything without getting something in return. And what they want right now is an end to the Korean War, uh, a, a political statement, as President Moon put it uh, yesterday, not a treaty, uh, but just a political statement by probably China, in, in addition to the two Koreas and the U.S., that the war is over and the armistice is over and a peace peace has fallen upon the peninsula. And it sounds like President Moon has gotten assurances from the North that this doesn't mean a withdrawal of U.S. troops from South Korea, that, uh, that it's uh, strictly this political statement. Well, one of the constant, uh, you know, misinformed statements you see in the American press, including the New York Times, is that uh, a peace agreement will be a prelude to the North demanding that American troops be withdrawn. Uh, Back in 2000, uh, Kim Jong-il, current leader's father, told uh, Kim Dae-jung at their first summit that uh, they would like to see American troops stay in the South as long as they don't go north of the DMZ, even under reunification. And that's because they see them as an important counterweight to Russia, China, and Japan uh, and a a way to have a relationship with the U.S. I mean, I've been saying this on this program and elsewhere for 25 years, but since the Soviet Union collapsed, what North Korea has wanted is to draw the U.S. in somehow uh, to solve its problems, economic, strategic, military, and so on, uh, and then be able to play Washington off against Beijing the way they always did Moscow against Beijing. And I think they're moving pretty close to that right now. They're getting uh, close to that, in part because Trump's relations with China are going in the toilet. Well, we'll see uh, <clears throat> what happens in the future. It's uh, interesting days, unprecedented days, really, and i look forward to seeing what happens. Yeah, the next week will be very important when the U.N. General Assembly opens up. Uh, Bruce Cummings, professor of history at the University of Chicago and the author of The Korean War, amongst other books. We'll keep our eye on what happens as South Korean President Moon Jae-in comes and talks with President Trump next week. Thanks a lot for joining us, Bruce Thank Cummings. you, Jerome. Coming up after the break, we'll have Weekend Passport and let you know how to have an international good time right here on Navy Pier at the World Dumpling Festival. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend. Our cultural ambassador, Nari Safavi, is here. Great to see you, Nari. Good day, Jerome. It's great to be here again. And we're going to South Asia uh, uh, on this segment. We're going to talk. I want to quickly mention that the South Asian Film Festival uh, is happening right now, and it's uh, happening at three different locations. It's happening this weekend over at the uh, over at the Oakbrook Mall is the opening night gala over there, and there are some really fantastic films from India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh over there. And there's also at the Icon Theater 
happening uh, in the South Loop area. Uh, I saw a fantastic film last night about it's called Salam. It's about the Pakistani Nobel Prize winner in physics that was eliminated from the Pakistani history by Zulfagar, uh, by Ali Bhutto, uh, or excuse me, by uh, or Ziaul Haq, the general, because he was an Ahmadi Muslim. So that's uh, and he was a liberal who didn't agree with him. So that was really a fantastic film. There were a lot of really great films, very strong programs. Check that out. South Asian Film Festival seems to be hitting its stride in year nine. Absolutely, year nine, and next year is the t- the tenth year, and uh, maybe we'll have them on the air at some point uh, for their tenth anniversary. Absolutely. What else yeah. you got, Nari? And I also Maz Jabrani, the Iranian American comedian who is very multicultural in his approach to comedy, has been on this broadcast several times and is a regular at Wait Wait Don't tell me, is performing tonight at the Skokie at the North Shore uh, uh, North Shore Center for the Arts. So check that out to, uh, tomorrow. That guy I mean, tonight, excuse me. That guy's nothing but funny. Absolutely hilarious. Let's move on to our main dish today. Our what main is today, that? I mean, today, these days, it's very fashionable to say things are intersectional, but this is intersectionality at its best, <laughs> I would say. And this is uh, what's happening is that World Music Festival, which we have talked about in the last couple of weeks, meets the World Dumpling uh, Dumpling Festival and meets World Registration Drive. Three different things going on combined to the same event happening on Sunday at the Polk Brothers Park at Navy Pier, which is the outside section of Navy Pier that's really been remodeled and it's really beautified into, in an interesting way. Emily Roycewig is here. She's executive director of the Chicago Cultural Alliance. You're in charge of what, the, the dumpling side of this thing? <laughs> we are in charge of the culture and the, and the dumpling side of things. World Music Festival is providing uh, four really exciting global music acts, and uh, we're interspersing that with some local cultural performance groups and, of course, of course, dumplings. And there's two stages up at the front of Navy Pier now if you haven't been to the remodeled Polk Brothers Park, and you can just alternate and bounce people back and forth. Yeah, that's what we're doing. We're hoping people fill up on dumplings from 10 different neighborhood ethnic restaurants in Chicago and enjoy some music throughout the day, 1 p.m. to 7.30. Who's got the dumplings? Who are the, Who's your favorite dumplings? Oh, I, I can't choose just one favorite, but uh, I think a couple of my uh, favorites from last year who are returning are Cafe Tola, who that has a black bean and goat cheese empanada that is just to die for. Mm. Um, also, Ethiopian Diamond has some delicious lentil sambusa, um, uh-huh. which is just delectable. I like the fried dumplings uh, myself, but also the pierogi from Kasha's Deli is delicious too. Well, uh, you mentioned the bands. Uh, we've got a band here in the studio with us. Uh, who are they? They are East meets Middle East, and they're a musical collective across continents celebrating the rich traditions of Middle East and South Asian influences. Well, let's hear some music. Let's see, we've got a band. Let's hear music. <laughs> and we've got them on uh, Facebook uh, Live, and it, we're at WBEZ Worldview, and you can watch the band in our studio at Facebook Live.
Marhaba. East meets Middle East, and you can see them at the World Dumpling Fest meets the World Music Fest. They are among the four bands that are playing at the Polk Brothers Park here at Navy Pier from 1 p.m. to 7.30 p.m. That was super fun. Nari, introduce us to a chef that's going to be at the uh, the Dumpling Absolutely. Fest. Absolutely. One of my favorite chefs uh, whom I've been tasting her food for 20 years or so, Georgina <laughs> Pereira, one of the preeminent Brazilian chefs here in Chicago and has had a successful catering company. She is going to be serving Brazilian-style dumplings. I found out that today the roots of it, some of it come from Middle East, some of it from Portugal. Tell us a little bit about it. Well, you never really thought about coxinha de galinha being a dumpling. But it is because you have a dough and some creamy chicken inside. Okay. So for the festival... I decided to cook the coxinha de galinha, which is a must in any parties in Brazil. Um, his olives, that mm-hmm. actually I found out, even though it was created in Portugal, is a very common dish in Indonesia. Mm-hmm. And um, the yuca, the yuca is gluten-free, and since we have so many gluten-free, vegetarian, vegan customers, I mean, making a bolinho de aimpim that is gluten-free. Excellent. It, it sounds delicious. <laughs> Georgina Perea, she is the founder and chef of the Brazilian restaurant Sinha Elegant Cuisine, featuring uh, great food from Brazil. That sounds delicious. And I hope to see you at the World Dumpling Fest and the World Music Fest teaming up here at Navy Pier Park. Uh, the Polk Brothers park right at the front of Navy Pier. It should be beautiful. Thanks a lot for everything. Uh, Thanks to the band. Thanks to Nari Safavi. Thanks to Emily from the uh, Chicago Cultural Alliance. And I hope you all have a great weekend. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.